On this episode of Reaganism, we are joined by Andy Puzder, CEO of CKE Restaurants, the parent company of Hardee's and Carl's Jr. Andy Puzder, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Thanks, Roger. Well, this is your, your second stint on Reaganism. Uh, it's wonderful to have you back. For our listeners and viewers, you were CEO of CKE Restaurants, which was the parent company of Hardee's and Carl's Jr. for nearly two decades, from 2000 to 2017. And I'm really just curious to get your take as a kind of with your CEO lens. What did you learn about the market and the economy more broadly? Um, kind of that experience teach you about domestic policy and the economy, being a CEO for so long, for 17 years? Well, you learn what to focus on. You know, you learn why GDP is important, why gross domestic product really influences every business across the spectrum. You learn the importance of labor uh, and how the labor market affects not only wages, but uh, uh, but your ability to run your business. I think businesses are learning today that, you know, labor a labor market crisis is a crisis uh, for the business, not only the worker. Uh, so you learn the importance of that. You learn the importance of inflation. You know, it's always that you're always in any environment, always trying to keep up with inflation so that you're, you 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 don't end up losing money because wages or or the price of commodities have inflated beyond the point where you can uh, you can still sell your product profitably. So it, it it takes it really takes a lot of the different sort of fundamental things that economists talk about. And, and makes them very real to you when you're running a business. And, and you know, it's the kind of thing Reagan actually understood uh, particularly well. And I'm, I'm not sure where exactly he got this great insight. I think it might, might have been intuitive to him. Uh, but he's always talking about the importance of business, not only uh, and the importance of profitability, not only for the business itself, but for the employees that work for those businesses in America in general. So I think as a CEO, work. you get a real feel for that. And particularly a CEO of a, of a company like the one you ran, CK Restaurants, because this isn't some startup that comes up with a software solution maybe half a dozen people <laughs> create and then it sells for who knows how many zeros. When you're the CEO of the parent company of our Hardee's and Carl's Jr., I mean, these are you know, restaurants across the country employing people at you know minimum wage, which I know you have uh, strong opinions about, but this is a labor-intensive company. And so these market forces that you've just talked about, GDP, uh, inflation, how commodities impact the business or something I guess you felt on a, on a daily basis. I want to get to all of it, but let's, let's talk inflation first. This is something that every American is feeling. In December of 2021, just uh, a few months ago, the overall inflation rate climbed up to 7%. And, you know, for many goods, the prices increased beyond 7%. If you were still CEO, tell me what you'd be doing with your company to manage this inflation, this growing inflation, 7% plus. Well, there's really only two things you can do to deal with inflation if you're, if you're running a business. Number one, uh, you can raise your prices. You, your prices have to stay above inflation or you're going to start losing money. And if you lose money, you have to close your business down. Everybody loses their jobs and you lose your business. The other alternative is to cut your expenses so that you don't have to raise, you don't have to raise your prices as quickly. And this is something that, that all businesses strive to do. You know, every day, every minute of every day, 
in an inflationary cycle, you're thinking about how you can reduce your labor costs, how you can reduce your commodity costs, how you can reduce your fuel costs, how you can reduce the cost of not only delivering goods, which is fuel, but also heating, air conditioning, how you can keep all of those costs down. Uh, and uh, I guess what gets the most publicity is uh, attempts to automate different procedures because in this, in our, with our current technology, you can automate things that, that it wasn't possible to automate in the past. Now, often the cost of automating things is high. So, and, and you really want to employ people. I mean, you, everybody likes to keep people working. You're not trying to get rid of your workers. But as the price of labor goes up, as the cost of labor goes up, for example, all of a sudden the cost of automating comes down because you're looking at it in a, in a new perspective. You're looking at it in the perspective of having to pay labor so much. So you see a lot of automation coming in. I think you're seeing that in the restaurant industry, but you're seeing, go to the gas station. There used to be people worked in the gas station. Nobody works in the gas station anymore. And it's an effort by these people to try and keep their prices down as the price of energy soars once again. Unless you're in New Jersey, of course, where the government requires you to have people work in those gas stations. And of course, they pay more for gas because you're you're paying for people to work at those gas stations. It's uh, uh, you know, every time that every time the government sticks its finger into the economy, it, it'll stick it in. It's like poking a balloon. You put you put your finger in somewhere, it creates pressure everywhere else. And well, let's talk. Let, let's talk about that because you recently had a piece in the Wall Street Journal with a colleague of yours, Will Coggin, on the Biden administration just. Doing that, um, dealing with inflation, you could deal with inflation through kind of macroeconomics, which I'm sure is the preferred course that you would pursue. In the case of the Biden administration, they, at least in some instances, want to deal with it uh, through microeconomics. And by that, I mean they were going after the meat packers. Tell us about the meat packers and what so offended you about the Biden administration's uh, approach to addressing inflation by trying to introduce more competition in that industry? Well, there, there were really two aspects to what, what Biden was saying. One was that there were four uh, meat packers, four producers that controlled about 50% of the, of the market and that they were forcing prices to go up. So let's think about that for a minute. First of all, one way to say it is 4% control 50%. The other way to say is that a lot of small businesses control the other 50%. So there's competition, number one, because the small businesses compete with the large businesses. Then he was saying there wasn't enough competition because you had these four big suppliers. Well, who does he think those four big suppliers compete with? Well, they compete with each other. It's like having Ford, Chrysler, General Motors, and you know, Nash Rambler back in the old days. You had four, four car manufacturers who competed with each other for business. So number one, it was a fallacy that the problem here was no competition. There was plenty of competition from small businesses and large businesses. So that was clearly wrong. The second part was his solution. And it's kind of the opposite of the Reaganomic solution. He wanted to regulate these large businesses. He wanted to regulate them because they're not competing. Now I want, any, I, you know, I, I, if we were doing this live to an audience, I'd have ask everybody to raise their hands who thinks that if you impose more regulations on these businesses, prices are going to come down. I mean, it, it, just, it just didn't make any sense. It was contrary to, to logic, it was contrary to reason. And if anybody's, if you've been alive for more than, I don't know, 45 years, you know, it was contrary to history coming out of the Carter administration and going into the Reagan administration. Well, this, this is not what you do to control costs. It's what you well, do to exacerbate the problem. 
Yeah, then there's there's a lot of rhyming and history going on here uh, between uh, Carter to Reagan and what we see today. Oh, yeah. But let's just stick with, with the Meatpackers for a second. You're making these points about forcing competition. You, of course, noted that there were, already was competition, but it's not going to result in lower prices. I, I take the point. Where do you go when you want to prevent businesses from colluding on price. Not that that was something the Biden administration said was happening there, but isn't there a place for government to basically ensure that if there are four companies in one sector, meatpacking, for example, we have to make sure that they're not sitting sitting together, you know, uh, behind closed doors and colluding on price, correct? Yeah, and, and, and it's illegal. <laughs> it's, it, you know, it, you can't do that. It's against the antitrust law. So, if they're, if they're doing that, the attorney general should launch an investigation and bring criminal prosecution. Uh, if they're colluding on price, they're violating laws that are already on the books. This isn't something that, that Biden had to create. Teddy Roosevelt created these laws. You know, this is not something that, that it's, of course, of course, they shouldn't be allowed to collude. But nobody said there was any evidence that they are colluding. So it, it's, uh, look, the reason the price of beef is going up is because the price of feed is going up. The price to transport beef is going up because gas prices are going up because we took the third largest energy producer in the world, the United States, and we announced that we weren't going to be exporting as much oil. Well, what did we think was going to happen to the, to the price of oil? When supply goes down with huge demand as we come out of the pandemic, it was obviously going to go up. And then the cost, if you've got a meatpacking plant, the, the cost to keep it cool, because you've you got to keep the place cool, right. is going. So all of their costs are going up. So it, it wasn't some collusion. It wasn't a lack of competition. It was an increase in the underlying cost going way down to the cost of fertilizer. So for him to try and address this by somehow attacking the businesses that are out there trying to supply the country with meat was verged on idiotic, uh, which brings us back to the Carter administration. <laughs> <laughs> well, and of course, there was an, uh, a complimentary motive from the Biden perspective was that they would spend a billion dollars subsidizing, and you hit on this briefly before, small business plants to, to compete in this space. And and you you call that out as as, you know, competition that actually will in no way really be meaningful. It won't reduce prices. And in fact, it will just be more government spending without having appreciable impact on, on prices. Well, you, you know, the problem is that the median age in this country is 40 and the, the Carter administration ended and the Reagan administration began <laughs> 43 years ago. So most people don't, don't remember this. But you should know from the Carter administration, when the government puts money into the economy to do something like you know, benefit certain sectors, it never helps. It never lasts. Even if there is temporary help, it never lasts. And it generally will hurt the overall economy and the direction of the economy. The best thing to happen in this country is when consumers guide the economy through their purchases, their decisions, their voting with every dollar they spend. And government makes sure that things don't happen, like price collusion, uh, and, that we, and the economy is allowed to move forward. I, it, it's what we're doing now is so antithetical to anything that makes economic sense. It's just, it's just really hard to fail. Them. So what would you do, Andy? Right, you've hit on a couple of these. Obviously, energy part, uh, policy is one example. But what would be the approach you would take today to address this inflation problem? Of course, uh, we'll get in a second to 
the Federal Reserve and policy, and it took the Federal Reserve some time to recognize that inflation was real, not transitory. But what would what would be some of the policies you put you put in place right now to get after inflation? Well, it, there are some things we should do that are that are just patently obvious. First of all, if we want to fix the supply chain problem, and the, one of the driving forces of of um, of inflation is the fact that we don't have enough supply. There aren't enough goods. Uh, there aren't enough services out there. And the reason is because people aren't working. We don't have, we've been paying people not to work. People have, you know, savings are way up because people have been getting checks. We need to stop encouraging leisure and start encouraging work so that people get back to work and we can revitalize our supply chains. That'll be a big help. The second thing is, if, we, if the programs that encourage people to work also stop flooding the economy with money, we'll see demand start to subside. We don't want demand to go negative, but we want it to get much closer to supply because if, it, if demand and supply aren't fairly close, uh, then you're going to have inflation or you're going to have deflation, which is even worse. But right now, we need to bring demand down. We need to bring supply up. We're also going to have to cool this economy down. I, I mean, it's we're, we're, we're seeing it really accelerate at uh, an, an unreasonable pace and a pace that we easily could have avoided if we did address this back at the beginning of the year. But now we've, as I said in one of those articles, uh, we released the Kraken, uh, the inflation Kraken back in March with this extra $1.9 billion in spending. Uh, and we need to get that under control. And that's going to require a Federal Reserve with the kind of courage uh, that we had back in the early 1980s. They're going to have to raise interest rates and they're going to have to stop flooding the economy with money. I, I mean, it's our, our, our money supply is up over a third over the past uh, two years since the pandemic began. That, that, that means when you have more dollars, what are they worth? Well, they're worth less. So you have to stop flooding the economy with dollars. So, uh, but so it's within take monetary policy, just to slow down there, and because you gave a few things to, to kind of unpack here, the Federal Reserve now has seemed to accepted that inflation is a problem. It's announced that it will taper, right? It's going to not go ahead and, and put as much money in the market, reduce it. And they seem to be increasing interest rates, have a plan to at least. Is it your view that those things need to happen, but just happen in a more significant fashion? Tapering needs to accelerate and rot and increase interest rates faster? Absolutely. You know, if everything is as great as the as the Biden administration claims, if the GDP is this incredible amount and all these people are working, well, what's the risk? You know, I, I mean, you know, during, I will tell you, in, in 1981, I bought my first house. The interest rate on my, it was 13%. I know people listening to this that are young won't believe that. Tell you what you really won't believe. About six months later, the bank contacted me. They wanted to buy the loan back because interest rates were at 17 percent. Wow. You know, th these are these are numbers that I don't think people can really fathom. And if, if we don't if we don't act more aggressively now, if we don't stop this, well, we'll reduce this a little. We'll increase that a little. You know, we got a quarter point increase. You know, look, you got to have a little more courage than that. Or we're going to end up back in this double digit high teens interest rate scenario which would be devastating for our economy. And given the world situation right now, would also be devastated for our national security interests. So I'm, I'm very concerned that the Fed is moving too slowly, too cautiously. You know, when President Trump was elected, yeah. the Fed increased, increased interest rates five quarters in a row. 
right? They they didn't hesitate. They didn't wait. Once the Democrat, once Obama was out of office, they increased interest rates five times. Yellen did the first two. Jay Powell did the next three. And they only stopped when the market reacted and said, hey, you know, it, th this isn't working. It, it, the market collapsed. Trump was complaining. Can't, let, let's, you know, they should be reducing interest rates by a significant amount every quarter, beginning as soon as possible, uh, or this is going to continue for a long time. You really think if they don't increase interest rates at a faster clip, we could see double-digit inflation? Yes. Uh, and, and it's not only because they haven't increased interest rates. It's the supply problem. Again, we don't have people working. We've got a real supply crisis. We need to get that built up. Uh, we've got this huge demand from all the government spending, but we've also got other things at play here. For example, our energy policies, you know, not refusing, banks are now getting together under the direction of John Kerry and refusing to lend money uh, to independent oil producers and larger oil producers, which is driving down our oil production, driving up the cost of oil, which drives up the cost of transportation. Uh, the supply chain is so impacting our, our, our infrastructure on uh, transportation that you've got these, um, what are those big bins they put everything in, they store them at the docks or shipping right. containers. They've got all these shipping containers that are piling up full of stuff because they have nobody to unload them. And so you've gone, you've seen shipping containers go from $2,000 to, uh, um, to, to lease up to $20,000 right. to lease. So the cost of transportation is going up apart from fuel. The price of, of fuel is going up and that's on top of supply and demand. So, All right, there's so, a, there's so we, we, we've left monetary, we've left monetary policy. We know what you want to do there, but you said that's necessary, but not sufficient. You've jumped to energy policy and how Biden administration, administration energy policy is resulting in increased costs for American businesses, which then of course increases inflation as well. You've also hit on labor a couple of times. Let's stick with labor here for a moment because you contend at the beginning of our conversation that people aren't working and we need to get people, I believe you said, uh, to stop the leisure all right, and go back to work. Um, aren't we approaching full employment, right? Didn't the unemployment numbers at this point, I don't know what the number is exactly, but the, the Fed has a outlook here where if unemployment drops, I think it's something like between two to three percent or two, two to three percent unemployment. That gentleman is referred to as full employment. So, Andy Puzzer, square that for us. How does this notion of full employment balance with your view that Americans are not working sufficiently here? Well, let, let, let me before I, I and I'll do that. But I say to begin with, we were at a record high number of people working around 180 million people in February of 2020 when the pandemic hit. They're claiming we're close to full employment now, but we're still about four, 4 million people short of getting back to the number we were at before the pandemic began. So all of these people coming back to work, which the Biden administration claims are job crea jobs created. You know, if you shut down an economy and don't let people work and then you let them come back to work, you really haven't created a job. But all these people coming back to work, this job creation uh, really hasn't even got us back to where we needed to be. So why is the unemployment rate so low, right? right. Well, if it's so low, why are we getting there? Well, the unemployment rate is the percentage of people in the workforce who are either, who are actively looking for a job. So if you've looked for a job in the last 30 days, you're considered unemployed. 
If you haven't looked for a job in 31 days, you're no longer considered unemployed. So when the labor participation rate, that is the people who are employed, plus the number of people actively looking for work is low, it's easy for the unemployment rate to be low, right? If you've got 10 people in the, in, let's say a 10 people in the labor force, just to make it easy, sure. and two of them, two of them were unemployed, your unemployment rate would be 20%. Let's say one of them stopped looking for work. The next month, if nobody else got a job, your unemployment rate would be 10%. If one more person dropped out of the labor force out looking for a job, the next month it would be 0%. Sure. So the who, how many people are in the labor force at, that is looking actively looking for work but unable to find it is important. And we are at an historic low in the labor participation rate. It has not come up anywhere near where it was at the beginning of the pandemic. So we're, we're, you're going to see full employment, but it's only full employment because people are staying home. So what do, you think the true what do you think the true jobs? Right. What do you think the true unemployment number is then? You'd add how much how many percentages to points to to the number we're seeing? Well, if you if you just took the labor participation rate when the pandemic began mm -hmm. and said it was the labor participation rate today, the unemployment rate would be between seven and eight percent. You know, that's not full employment. And what happened to all those workers? Well, I think we all know what happened to those workers. <laughs> some of them are our kids and grandkids. And some of them are just people we know who just don't really feel the need to return to work yet. Now, some of it is fear of the pandemic, although I have to say, I think that's that's dissipated considerably, particularly as the Omicron uh, variant seems to subside and people realize it's you know, it's not a, a particularly serious, at least as serious a threat as the Delta variant was, for example. Um, I think you're seeing that to be less of an influence, but people have a ton of money. I mean, given what we did during the pandemic, we spent $5.3 trillion. We then spent another $1.9 trillion at the beginning of 2021 when we no longer needed to. So that's $7 trillion that were poured into the economy in, uh, since, 20, since February of 2020. That's a tremendous amount of money. And people have that people have big savings accounts. People have been stacking that money away. They've been unable to spend it. And they're not feeling really any pressure to return to the labor force. So they're not. But take me through that. I could see that for some class of, of, of folks that may apply. But go back to your role as the CEO of, of CKE. And many of your employees are minimum wage workers. Those yeah, you know, really... Not, Really, we never we never had many, at least the, the, when I was running the company, you, you really never had many people that were paid the minimum wage. I, my guess, if I had to guess what the percentage of people being paid minimum wage today is, I'd guess zero. Uh, the, if you, you drive down the street, uh, I'll, I mean, in fact, I was out driving around yesterday, I drove by a Hardee's and, it's, and they were advertising, instead of advertising a product in the reader board that you see when you go past a restaurant, they were they were advertising starting wage fourteen dollars an hour, you know, and and that and that's the low end. I mean, there yeah, are well, places that, that are paying that's up. That's my point. I, I didn't want to get stuck on uh, whether they're making minimum wage workers, but it's people who are making you know an hourly wage, usually south of twenty dollars an hour. That's the heart and soul of of the people who work in a in a fast food restaurant like a Hardee's, like a Carl's Jr. I can't imagine even with the, all the government spending and money sloshing around, 
people who would be in those jobs are no longer there are sitting back because you know they they saved so much during the pandemic i mean is that is that really your contention well you you not only did you save during the pandemic but these programs are continuing you still can get unemployment you still there's still the child tax credit was reduced there's still the child tax child tax credit so money continues to flow out to people that already have savings because they were given checks during the pandemic. They don't have big bills out there. And then you've got people, and I will tell you, I, you know, I speak to people in the restaurant sector fairly regularly. And what I'm hearing is the workforce changed, the work ethic changed during the pandemic. You've now got people coming in and saying, you know, I'll work, I'll work part-time. I really don't want to work full-time and I'm not going to work weekends. I'm not going to work Friday night. And can I, can I, I want to work this work schedule. Okay. And, and employers are so desperate for employees uh, that they have to, that they're taking these employees on. And which is why you're seeing it. If you go to a restaurant now or really any facility, you're going to see a decline in the level of service uh, because you've really had a change in the work ethic in the American workforce. And we're not going to get that back with more government spending. We're not going to get that back with more government programs. We need to incur. And, and by the way, I'm I'm all for it. I really I really like um, uh, the employee tax credit. Uh, I think that's a, a great way to address this problem. To actually encourage people to work, to supplement their incomes from work. I think when we encourage people not to work, and this was Joe Manchin's uh, probably his major objection to Build Back Better was that there were programs in there that were encouraging people to stay home and not to work. And he said, look, you know, inflation's bad enough as it is. Why would we do this? And uh, thank God for Joe Manchin. It was a very good question. Let's stay with uh, the restaurant business and, and the workforce. Is it a bad thing that labor, that workers have leverage at the moment and see an opportunity to realize an increased wage and to dictate to their employer when they'd like to work, when they don't want to work in their hours. I mean, this is the opportunity. I would, you know, I think all of us expect our workforce to produce but at the same time, seek out their, their, their interest and, and get the optimal job for their life. You know, I, I, I don't think anybody objects to workers having leverage and, uh, and to seeing working conditions improve for workers. The balance is between keeping businesses afloat and, and, and creating jobs and moving forward and, and forcing the system to rebalance. In other words, as you, as you don't have employees, there are going to be fewer jobs. Businesses aren't, you, you've already had tremendous numbers of closures. There are going to be additional numbers of closures because this is going to have to level out. You can't run a business if you don't have employees. You can't run a business you know, that should be open 10 hours a day if you're only able to be open six hours a day. You've still got to pay rent. You've still got to heat the building. You've still got to pay taxes. You've still got to pay all of the various costs that are fixed costs when you're running a business. And the less time you're open, the less time you're able to operate at maximum uh, capacity, the, the more likely you are to close and the less likely you are to open new businesses. Now, if businesses are closing and we're not opening new businesses, what you're going to find is all of a sudden the demand for employees is going to decrease and you're not going to have the kind of wage gains that you're seeing now. So there needs to be a balance. I don't think anybody objects to um, seeing. I, I'm all for wages going up. They went up during the uh, the Trump administration, they went up 20 straight, uh, the 20 straight months at 3% plus, which never happened during the Obama-Biden administration. Uh, since the pandemic, those numbers have been skewed. 
But I, there was no reason they shouldn't go up. There was real demand for workers, but the but the economy was driving the demand. In other words, it wasn't some not, it wasn't government, government spending, spending that yes. that is essentially keeping the workforce on the sidelines. But correct. But in, in, if it was the economy driving, you'd have no problem with the sign in the window saying $15 an hour, $16 an hour, $17 an hour. No, wages were going there anyway. I, look, when the pandemic started, you couldn't hire an employee for 10 to $12 an hour. Uh, you know, so it, it's now the pandemic has driven those numbers up. Uh, but no, really, no, it, nobody was making seven and a quarter an hour. I mean, nobody was making the federal minimum wage. They, there may be states where people were making the state minimum wage. You know, California, I think, went to 15. Uh, but the, the, the economy driving wages up is a positive thing, not a negative thing. Government spending driving wages up and, and reducing the ability of businesses to grow and hire and stay open, that's a negative. And let's just take a minute since we were talking about minimum wage and, and you've been a forceful critic of the minimum wage and, and raising it. Take a couple of minutes just to outline your principal objections to taking a, you know, addressing the needs of the American work worker by increasing minimum wage. Yeah. My, you know, I never objected to increasing the minimum wage. Uh, what I have always objected to is increasing it above what the market can bear. If you, if you increase the wage higher than what businesses can afford to pay one, they're going to raise their prices. So we're going to see inflation. Everybody's going to pay for that. And two, they're going to do what they can to reduce cost, to reduce labor costs. In other words, they're going to try and eliminate jobs, either by increasing what their work, what their current workforce can do or should be doing, or by um, automating uh, positions, which is also an alternative. So, I, 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 if you if you want, if we have to have a minimum wage, and I, I agree with the New York Times back in 1978, where they said the best minimum wage is zero. Uh, which is what Milton we Milton Friedman proposed as well. Did you say that was the New York Times back in 1978. It was the New York Times. They had an editorial: the best minimum wage is zero, according to all the rational economic thought, which is true, by the way. I, it, it the minimum wage really doesn't help if it's below it, what the market can bear, because the market you're going to be competing for employees anyway, so you're going to be probably above that. Uh, if you're above what the market can bear, then you're really reducing jobs, and it doesn't make a lot of sense. So we've talked a little bit about it makes everybody feel good. By the way, everybody's oh great, we're we're good people. We you know we raise the minimum wage, but uh, if you're looking at it from a rational economic perspective, it's not a great it's not a great move. But I'm not opposed to it as long as you don't raise it above what the market can bear I mean, and therefore damage the economy. What yeah, that's what I hear you saying. If it's self, it, it could be self defeating if it's if it's not. Yeah pegged in the way you describe. You've also written not only about unemployment numbers and here in our conversation already shared how we're not at full unemployment. If you kind of look at the context here and see what the numbers were prior to the pandemic, the Biden administration would, would, would point to nearly, you know, the number that suggests that we're approaching uh, full employment as success. They'd also point to the latest GDP numbers, which is up 5.7% over the previous year. Now, you've also provided context uh, uh, in terms of that claim as well. Take us through why the GDP numbers perhaps are not as good or not as, uh, as, a, as big a success as the Biden administration would claim. So GDP, as you know, is a it's a year-over-year -year number. In other words, it's a number that if, if you're— uh, 
if if the number is low in the prior year, let's say the number is negative two, right? Because you're in a pandemic or you're in a recession. Well, all you have to do is get it up. You know, if you go up one percent where it was before that, you're now positive three because you're really rolling over the prior number. So the worst the prior year was the better the current year will be. And everybody knew. Last fall, Larry Kudlow, Donald Trump, everybody was saying, look, 2021 is going to be a spectacular year for, for GDP growth because 2020 is so bad. I mean, in 2020, we had, we shut businesses down. When you shut down the economy, guess what happens to GDP? Now, so what we had this year was 5.7%. If you compare the dollars of GDP, right, it was 19% uh, 19 trillion dollars in 2019. It was 19.4 trillion dollars in 2021. So that's comparing pre-pandemic to where we are now. Yes, and that's it was up about two percent. Got it. So two percent really isn't that great a number, particularly. And keep in mind, government spending drives GDP in the year that you spend the money. So we're talking about $7 trillion in spending over a two-year period, and GDP increased 2%. So explain, to that, explain that one more time. So when the government appropriates these trillions, you know, the infrastructure bill is the most recent. Well, not in infrastructure. They haven't spent a dime of that yet. So oh, they just okay. passed it. The 1.9 that that's COVID relief, where they just Got wrote it. checks to everybody last March. Infusing money into the economy like that does drive GDP growth for the year you spend it. <laughs> so they spent $7 trillion over two years between pandemic relief and the Biden post-pandemic relief. And all they got out of it was a 2% increase in GDP from the pre-pandemic period. That's nothing to brag about. And to brag about the number this year compared to last year, look, a chimpanzee could have run the economy this year, and it would have been better than 5.7%, because the chimpanzee wouldn't have passed that inflation-driving bill sure. uh, we had last March, which hurts non, GDP. Yeah, in a non-pandemic year, we don't have these huge COVID relief bills that you've just outlined. Right. What would be the amount of money government would contri contribute to the GDP? What would kind of, what's the baseline to demonstrate how much more government spent and contributed to GDP growth? Well, government spends about $4 trillion a year, and that's with a $1 trillion uh, uh, deficit. So they, you know, they end up printing money or borrowing money to spend that extra trillion. But they spend about $4 trillion a year. Now, government spending didn't, I mean, it didn't materially slow down during the pandemic. So you're still spending that $4 million. So when I say you spent $7 million, I meant on top of normal spending. You spent $7 trillion extra dollars. And you still only ended up with GDP that was at about 2% higher than where you started. So that would be negative growth in the absence of the government spending? You, you certainly would assume that, wouldn't you? Huh. Fascinating. Um, let's talk well, you about know, the- When you think about it, though, Roger, we shut down the economy. Yeah, I, you know, it, it, was, it was zero for a period of time. And some states are still reluctant to fully open their economies. So you, you, you probably, you, know, you definitely would have had negative numbers in that period. Let's talk about the Build Back Better uh, plan that the Biden administration put forward. And of course, uh, doesn't look like for now uh, has much of a future, uh, not because Republicans are opposed, uh, because Democrats in the Senate are opposed. Senator Manchin, Senator Sinema are, are the two that get most attention. 
Yet there are elements and programs in that bill that some Republicans can get behind or have gotten behind. I'm curious, Andy, to get your take on a, a couple of those. Give me your take on child tax credit and extending that. There are senators like Senator Rubio, for example, mm -hmm. Senator Lee, Republicans who generally, Senator Romney, for example, uh, are, are supportive of a child tax credit. How do you think through such a proposal? Well, first of all, we have a child tax credit. What they're talking about is making it a bigger child tax credit. They want to, they want to increase the expand. funds. Extend it and expand it. They we're currently, you know, we, the, the current extension, the current expansion doesn't expire until June, I don't believe. So they want, they want to keep that extension in place, which I think is one of the things that's driving um, the, the lack of labor force participation are these child tax credits. Because they don't go to children, they go to parents who have children, right? So the money is the money's out there um, to be spent as the parents choose to spend it. So number one, I, don't, I have no objection to a child tax credit. I, we have one, I think it's a good idea. I have no objection even to expanding it as long as you tie it to a work requirement. This was the big innovation of Gingrich and Clinton. You may recall when, uh, when, when President Clinton came out and said, look, we're gonna reform welfare. Newt Gingrich made that part of his, his uh, commitment, his contract to, with America. They actually tied welfare payments to work. To right. So you're encouraging people to work, but you're helping people that can't work. Uh, Obama got rid of that. Uh, Biden has not tried to reinstate it, and they want to expand the child tax credit without a work requirement. And I, I, I would be very surprised if, if Marco Rubio or Mitt Romney or any other Republicans would support an expansion of the child tax credit without, a, without tying it back to work. And I know Joe Manchin wouldn't. He's been very vocal about that. Another one that gets a lot of attention, and also it's tied to, to workforce, is a universal pre-K program. Uh, there's a view, although uh, the Wall Street Journal has highlighted the editorial board, uh, what's going on in Tennessee, which would seem to suggest that it may not be uh, the best policy solution. But there's a view that the cost of pre-K childcare is so significant, it prevents parents can't afford it. They have to stay home and prevents them from entering the workforce. Andy, what, what are your thoughts uh, of a universal pre-K program as essentially another entitlement, but it seems to be an entitlement that some conservatives want to get behind because it may incentivize work, and without it, parents aren't working? Well, one, one thing, you have to know when you, when you uh, have universal pre-K, are we talking about universal pre-K, free uh, pre-K for uh, people based on an economic test, or is this universal pre-K for everybody, whether you're a, a billionaire or you're, you or you have? Well, you choose uh, it. Or, I mean, if you want to say I want well, it means tested, that's fine. I'm 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 looking well, to get your a view big on difference, what, it would, so what it would be. Means tested will drive up the cost of pre-K because you, if you if you make it more broadly available and you subsidize it uh, for people that are unable to afford pre-K, you're going to end up increasing the demand for pre-K. And that's going to increase the cost of pre-K for people that aren't in the means-tested group. So it's something that needs to be looked at very carefully. I, I'm, I'm, I live in Tennessee, and it, it certainly hasn't been helping here. But I will tell you that I'm, I'm a little suspicious of any, uh, any program, where, the, particularly right now, where the government has uh, more time, more, more days, more years uh, of control over what our kids are seeing. Uh, I'm, I'm really 
very unhappy with what's happening in public schools. I'm unhappy with what's happening in the public universities and private universities. I think kids are being indoctrinated. Uh, I'm not sure that, pre that universal pre-K is something that all parents would be supportive of. I certainly wouldn't want to send my kids to it. Uh, you know, it, it's, there are probably ways to, to implement pre-K, universal pre-K that makes sense, but there are ways it can be manip manipulated. And it seems that whenever we start one of these programs, what, who was the man who said that the, the one of the only things that's immortal is a government program? I think I, I believe I believe that was one of Reagan's best, but, yeah, but one of his best. I, but I but on once this. we put this in place, is it going to turn into another a government indoctrination center? Or are well, we okay. actually I mean, going to use it to try and help people? Let, let's stay on this for just a minute. I mean, I think for pre-K, I mean, we all um, have concerns about the direction. Many conservatives have concerns about the direction public education is going. Uh, that's high schools, uh, perhaps middle schools, pre-K, you know, I guess there could be, you know, see critical race theory in the, in the pre-K, but I'm guessing that's less of a concern when the Wall Street Journal editorial board outlined the, the, the case in Tennessee was less about the content of the education from the standpoint of indoctrination and more about actually whether or not they saw a meaningful difference in those students who went to pre-K in terms of their success rates and reading like in second grade and really matriculating to later grades. Um, it really wasn't a critique, as far as I recall, of the cost or even the rationale of if you create universal pre-K for a certain class of people, um, you know, then you might then you're incentivizing those people to go to work because they don't have to stay home and take care of their children. Given your expertise in, in, in labor, I'm just curious, does that speak to you? Do you think you would get that workforce back uh, employed if they didn't have to stay home? Because the cost of pre-K, everybody agrees, is, is, is rising. I'd be, I'd be surprised. I know we, we um, our, at our restaurants, when I was running CK restaurants, we were about 69% uh, minorities and about 70% females in our general managers, our restaurant general managers. Uh, we had a lot of single uh, minority moms who were running our restaurants. Look, if, if people need pre-K, if they need pre-K to get back to work, I'm not opposed to that. I'm, and I, and I, don't, I don't really think the motive here is that kids that get pre-K are going to do better in high school or do better in college or do better with their education going forward. I think the real motivation behind this is to make it so that parents can work and, and yeah. afford to support themselves and their families. And I have no objection to that as long as we try and structure it in a way that it can't be taken advantage of and converted into another government program that lasts forever and produces very little good. Um, and and I, I do have concerns. I, I, you know, I don't really like the idea of taking kids, making it easier to take kids away from uh, from parents. Being you may, Are you encouraging single parent you know, households are, it, it's, there's a lot of things that would need to be considered to come up with a good program. And I, I'm not, this is not an area of my expertise, but if it helped people out, I have no problem with such a program. It's just got to be structured correctly. Well, we'll come back to the next time we have you on. Uh, and there are remaining minutes. I do want to go back to something, a Reagan speech you shared with us during our lightning round when you last appeared on the show. And this was a speech President Reagan delivered at Hillsdale College in 1977. You were the first of our guests to highlight this speech. Uh, an oldie but a goodie, I might add. And the title of the speech was, Whatever Happened to Free Enterprise? 
I want to read a quote from it, Andy, and, and get you to elaborate on it. Uh, it's a great one. It obviously has resonance today. President Reagan, of course, at the time, he was, uh, he had just challenged, uh, he was challenging Ford. He had not been elected president. He was a former governor. He said, profit is a dirty word blamed for most of our social ills. In the interest of something called consumerism, free enterprise is becoming far less free. Property rights are being reduced and even eliminated in the name of environmental protection. This is 1977, I remind our listeners and viewers. It is time that a voice be raised on behalf of the 73 million, parenthetically, who pay taxes, pointing out that profit, property rights, and freedom are inseparable. And you cannot have the third, that is freedom, unless you continue to be entitled to have the first two, profit and property rights. Andy, these words still matter today. Give me your take. Uh, they sure do. It's a, it was like the guy was Nostradamus. I mean, he's he's predicting, you know, the the uh, the very severe situation that we're in today. Look, we have a wonderful economy. People, everybody's out there every day striving to meet the needs of other people. That's capitalism. They're all trying to figure out what product or what service they can provide to people at a reasonable cost that will meet people's needs. I guess you could call that consumerism, but it's very focused on consumers. It's it makes capitalism the greatest, uh, the, really the greatest form of democracy in history. People vote with every dollar they spend, uh, which companies succeed, which fail, directing the economy, sending us in the correct direction. And you really, uh, you know, Barack Obama in 2015, and I'll follow the Reagan quote with an Barack Obama quote, said that um, there's no question that the free enterprise system has created more wealth than any economic system in history and has lifted billions of people out of poverty. You know, if that's not a system worth defending, then there's something wrong. There's, I, I, I'm, you know, I'm sorry. There's something and wrong that's with Barack the way Obama's we're approaching words you're sharing with us. Andrew, Those right? are Barack Obama in 2015, after he'd been president for seven years. So this is this this is an incredible system. It's a system based on freedom. It's a a a, a system based on the ability to make a profit, which is really just the ability to benefit from your efforts, which you don't have in a socialist economy. You you don't benefit from your efforts. You benefit from some collective effort, which means nobody ever really tries to do very much because you're you're involved in a collectivist situation. But people striving forward to try and um, and profit from their own efforts, uh, to own a piece of property that they can pass on to their kids, uh, and to make the kinds of decisions that drive economic growth and prosperity, really, that the world's never seen before. That's the, that's the system that Ronald Reagan was defending. And it's a system that we need to defend today, and we need to defend it as articulately as he did back in 1977 at Hillsdale College uh, every every moment of every day, because we're, we're losing a generation of kids who don't remember uh, that far back, who don't remember what happens when there's a socialist power in the world that can threaten us. We've now got one again with China, and uh, people may wake do. up to it soon. And profit, property rights, and freedom are under assault or are not existent there, under assault elsewhere around the oh, world. Yeah. Uh, Andy, let's close this out with uh, another lightning round. I don't know if there's another speech you've pulled out of the archives you want to share with us <laughs> or another book, but we'll take anything you have as we close out this discussion. I will say um, I'm going to use Ronald Reagan's quote on inflation. Uh, this is why inflation is a concern. Inflation is as violent as a mugger, as frightening as an armed robber, 
and as deadly as a hitman. He said that in 1978, and by 1980 and 81, that's just how it was hitting us. And those are good words for us to keep in mind today as we look at what, what problems we should address. Should we be spending more, or should we be doing the things we need to keep this inflation dragon, this inflation cracking under control? Andy Puzzer, thank you so much for being on the show. We look forward to having you back and taking us through the state of our economy. My pleasure, Roger. Thank you, and anytime. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Reaganism. New episodes premiere weekly every Monday on YouTube and all podcast streaming platforms. If you like this episode, be sure to let us know and share with a friend.